This podcast contains discussion of suicide and suicidal thoughts. Let's start with the first few sentences in the Bible. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Um, That would be Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, and I think 2. Yeah, I could do a few of those. Out of My Mind is a podcast about mental health, produced for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. In each episode, one person talks about their life and about the view from inside their head. Today, Harvey Milk and the Dinosaurs, with Andy Corston of Masterton. When I was about six, I started thinking about dinosaurs, because they don't really actually fit into the Genesis record in any meaningful way. It would have been difficult to create them all in one literal day. But we're told, doesn't matter, not in the Bible. That's hardly a satisfactory answer in my view. I was born in Grace Hospital, Vancouver. My father was a teacher and my mother was a homemaker. My childhood was happy. My mom and dad did their very best to uh, raise four children. I think the bipolar thing, if it was there, it was latent, and I think it was brought out by stress and adrenaline. I'm of the fifth generation to belong to the church that we went to. It's difficult to describe what that church was like because each individual gathering of people have a lot of autonomy. The one that I belonged to was ultra-conservative and it was also all immersive. It was your whole life. Church on Sunday morning and evening, sometimes in the afternoon, Wednesday for Bible class. Church on Sunday, pretty much every statutory holiday. Church on Sunday, youth groups, study Bible class. Sunday, youth all groups. of what you did in your spare time. Sunday, during the year, we were expected to read the Bible through entirely, the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice. The book of Genesis was taken to be literal. I was taught about the end times, about Armageddon, and how that would signal the return of Christ. The church are conscientious objectors. And so there were an entire class of careers that I was not allowed to do. Join the police forces, join the military, learn how to fly planes, learn how to sail boats. I was not allowed to be a lawyer or a politician. I was not allowed to do jury service. I was not allowed to vote because all of those things would be enough to invalidate your conscientious objection status. Homosexuality was not something that was even talked about within the church. We were reminded about Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to them and what the occupants of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to do to the angels. Um, what did they want to do to the angels? They wanted to sodomize them. <laughs> <laughs> It's an interesting read. God deciding that Sodom and Gomorrah, being full of homosexuals, rained fire and brimstone down on both cities and destroyed them. So it was definitely a bad thing to be homosexual. It was was frowned upon. 
My best friend was the middle brother of three. He left all kinds of clues that I should have picked up on. The fact that he wasn't really into sports, the fact that he was deeply artistic, the fact that he was more interested in doing things that I would have thought girls would have been interested in. People in the church believed that the earth was only 6,000 years old. Things were created, they did not evolve. So that raises the interesting question about what about dinosaurs? When I was a younger adult, one of the places I ended up going was Drumheller, Alberta. Drumheller, Alberta is famous for dinosaur bones. I remember seeing the dinosaur bones with my own two eyes and thinking to myself, these things actually did exist. There it is right there, and it is so old it has turned into rock. And yet my beliefs told me these things did not exist. And that was my first cognitive dissonance, where what I could observe with my own two eyes contradicted what I had been taught to be true. Yeah, when I was about six, and unable to be questioned. I started thinking about dinosaurs because they don't really actually fit. I met my wife more or less by accident. She was studying piano at the University of Washington. She belonged to the same religion, albeit in New Zealand. I offered to show her the town, along with her sister. I thought to myself, you know, this is somebody who's quite special and quite unique. I decided to take a holiday in Australia for six weeks. I decided to have a stopover in Christchurch and have coffee with this red-headed girl that I'd met. And I ended up asking her to marry me after three days. I decided to move very swiftly in that respect, and that sort of foreshadowed my later career as a risk manager. Risk management is all about developing certainty from uncertainty. I decided that, you know, when you have met the right person and you know that it is the right person for you, you are most foolish to drag the issue out and wait around. And of all the things that have happened to me, I would say that was the most fortunate thing from a mental health point of view, because you can't actually get through it without excellent support. And my wife has certainly provided that. I studied computer systems technology at British Columbia Institute of Technology. And you know, almost exactly 10 years after graduating, moved to New Zealand with my wife. With Y2K, the problem was one of date sequencing. Almost everyone is preparing for the worst. Potential Y2K computer crashes top the list. So when the clocks ticked over, 99 would become 00, and dates would fall out of sequence. People didn't know what would happen if that bug materialized. On New Year's Eve, the general workload... I ended up providing Y2K guidance to cities, power companies, core infrastructure within New Zealand. It was unhelpful that Y2K was hijacked by sensationalist journalists and survivalist wackadoos. 
who took this potentially catastrophic risk to silly scenarios like planes falling out of the sky or atomic bombs accidentally launched. It became more of a curiosity and I think actually a laughing point for the general public. So they weren't actually able to see that there were some very good IT specialists and risk managers trying really hard to find out where the problems lay and how to go about fixing them. For the three years that I was involved with Y2K, I was a very busy guy. I was working 12, 14 hours a day. I'd get home late, be stressed out. We just had our first kid, so I was sustaining this workload with very little sleep. My wife got pregnant again with our daughter. I discovered that I had a uh, irregular heartbeat, uh, atrial fibrillation. Given my religious context at the time, it was difficult not to wonder whether Y2K may have some millennialist applications. My religion had an avid interest in the end times. They saw the establishment of the State of Israel after the Second World War as a fulfillment of prophecy. They saw the end times would happen sometime within the lifespan of people who saw that event. It was difficult not to speculate whether Y2K was a fulfillment of prophecy. I certainly wondered, but, well, Christ still hasn't returned, and so... <laughs> I remember exactly where I was at the turn of the millennium. I was in the boardroom with the partner responsible for Y2K compliance for New Zealand. Nothing happened. So again, cognitive dissonance. You know, what I could see and observe with my own two eyes, which was prophecy not being fulfilled, was in direct conflict with what I had been taught to be true from a young childhood. Following the turn of the millennium, work for people like me dried up. That didn't stop the pressure, it became more intense, and I suffered what I thought was my second heart attack. I was 38 at the time. It wasn't a heart attack, it was atrial fibrillation being triggered by anxiety. And this is actually the point, I had had enough, I thought, this type of life is for the birds, I'm going to join the French Foreign Legion. It is an army of foreigners that fight for France and at the end of their contract receive French citizenship and a new identity. During their contract, they'd do things that armies do. It's been called an army of thieves and cutthroats. Parachuting out of airplanes, interfering in the internal affairs of foreign governments, fighting wars, slithering through jungles... And for some people, that might have some appeal. But for me, it was an opportunity to start again. Because I'm Canadian, I speak French, or I understand French at a rudimentary level. Because I have a British passport, getting to France would be reasonably straightforward. The first thing that I did was read everything that I could about the French Foreign Legion. 
not the stuff in the movies, but what was actually involved, for real. So I jumped on the internet, looked in the encyclopedias, got to know a few people online who had joined the French Foreign Legion in their lives. Next step was to apply for my British passport to be renewed. Thereafter, to buy tickets to France and start again. My plans came unstuck when my wife found my passport application. And from there, everything unraveled. My wife was able to reacquaint me with reality. Between 2002 and 2009, life had many ups and downs, and I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Eventually, though, it became apparent to my doctor that there was something else happening, an elevated mood. She referred me to a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. My cycles happened about a fortnight apart, which is very close. And that's why my doctor had difficulty spotting it. One week I'd be up, the next week I'd be down. Arapax seemed to work in elevating my depressed moods. Pharmac decided that I couldn't have Arapax, that I would have to have the generic version. It behaved differently, caused side effects, and we tried many medicines. Notably, citalopram comes in two different flavors. One flavor made me giddy all the time, and the second flavor gave me violent hallucinations. At that point, I decided it wasn't safe for me to sleep in the same room as my wife, and so I lived in what was essentially a garden shed. And it was around about that time that my best friend came out of the closet. I was very ill at the time. My life was a mess. I was living in the garden shed. It was New Year's Eve. Our families had spoken by telephone overseas. My wife came down and said, I've had some disturbing news. And over the next few weeks, the whole story came out that the church had turned against him and against his wife and against the rest of his family and booted him out. This is a friend that I had known all of my life, and I had known him to be a remarkably kind individual. I was being told that my best friend was a bad human being, whereas I knew him to be a very good human being. Once again, cognitive dissonance came into play. What I knew to be true was being contradicted by what I was told to be true. And you know when that happens to you, it really messes you up. Because you get into this flick, 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 and you can't reconcile it. And for the first time, I decided that I was going to rely on what I knew to be true. I sided with my best friend against the church. The religion, as I knew it, came unstitched. This was dinosaurs again. This was millennialism again. This was questioning books in the Bible again. Cognitive dissonances between what I knew to be true and what I had been told to be true could no longer be compartmentalized. And so I could rely on nothing. I could rely on none of my memories. I could rely on none of my beliefs. I, I think the cognitive dissonance actually drove the bipolar cycles because, you know, you have two polar extremes. 
and what you know to be true, what you think to be true, and they're in conflict. Your mind never rests when that happens. Now that's an exhausting way to live. And if I wanted a test of the loyalty of my wife, that time would be it. But she's actually still very devout. A lot of men going through what I had been through would have ended up divorced and possibly would have ended up in the street. A lot of marriages would not have survived that. A large part of the reason why that didn't happen to me was that I had great family support from my wife and my two children. Because if I didn't have that, the next step would have been, you know, you go from the garage to under a bridge, and that could happen in a fortnight. And for a lot of men, it does. In 2012, I went over to Canada and I met with my best friend. And we had a chance to have a long discussion about what had happened to each of us. He hadn't changed. The only thing that had changed is that I now knew the truth. He was always gay. We corresponded regularly after that. And during one of those correspondences, he described to me the therapeutic effects for him that coming out achieved. The gay community all over this state. My message to you is... And introduced me to the ideas of Harvey Milk around coming out. Harvey Milk was a politician in San Francisco who was openly gay and was assassinated by a bigot. And one of the ideas that Harvey Milk had was that every gay person must come out. People who were homosexual needed to come out to their family, to their friends, to the people who knew them to destroy the lies that people believed about homosexuals. By doing that, they could see that people who are homosexual are their friends, their brothers, their sisters. People in the stores you shop in. The guy who owns the store down the street. For me, that was like a revelation because that very same process was what I actually needed to do with my mental health disorders. I had entrusted that information to a few people, but I hadn't actually proclaimed myself as mentally ill to the whole wide world. And I decided if it worked for my best friend, why wouldn't that work for me? Except not in a homosexual context, because of course I'm straight, but in a mental illness context. People who are mentally ill aren't crazy axe murderers, they're people that you know. It was a powerful concept for me. It was then that I decided that rather than keeping it as a secret, I would be overtly mentally ill. Two help destroy the lies, to help destroy the stigmatization. Because when people did find out about my mental illnesses, pretty much all of the people that I'd considered to be friends ran away screaming, except for a very few. And the people who ran away screaming were actually not friends, they are at best acquaintances, or maybe just people that I thought I knew and didn't. The ones who stuck around very few in number, became the core of a very powerful support network for me and for others. Harvey Milk was absolutely right. My best friend was absolutely right. The way to solve this isn't to hide it or to pretend it's not there. The way to solve it is to let the people that you know 
know that it's you. From that point on, I made no secret the fact that I was bipolar, that I had clinical depression, and that I had anxiety. And I basically decided to use that information for good. Following from that, I decided I was going to study for an MBA. I had enjoyed doing my MBA possibly too much because I went into a manic cycle that kept me awake for three weeks. One day when I went into the university, I must have concerned them sufficiently that they suggested I go and see the school psychologist. I was teary, possibly incoherent, talking fast, heart racing. I told her that I was concerned about my ability to drive home and she offered to find somebody to do that for me. Later that night, my wife came downstairs and said to me, Andrew, I think you're not well. I think you need to go and see the hospital. I decided, well, I've been married to this woman for sufficiently long that she knows me better than I know me. And if she says I need to go to hospital, I'm going to go to hospital. I was assessed at the hospital. They noted things like delusions of grandeur, typical bipolar manic cycle stuff and they agreed to take me as a voluntary inpatient at the Wyatt-Hatterau Mental Health Ward in Whitehackery Hospital. But before I went into the ward I had the presence of mind to think that everything that I negotiated before I signed on the dotted line I'd get to keep and so I negotiated for them to give me the right to come and go as I pleased, to receive visitors, to go for coffee with my wife, to have my books, my computer, everything that I'd need to be comfortable for the next 14 days or so, which they all agreed to, and we signed on the dotted line, and I became an inpatient. Shortly after doing that, they tried to renegotiate some of the concessions they had made, and apparently I told them, I'm a businessman, and a deal is a deal. Get out of my room. Wyatterow, I don't remember much about. I do remember that it was a terrifying place and closest thing to Lord of the Flies that I had ever experienced. The guy in the room across from me had been living in the streets and he had a badly abscessed tooth. Looked like he had a ton of small stuck in his cheek. They weren't giving him any pain relief at all and he would spend his nights crying and screaming in the room across from me in the ward. I knew that nicotine can provide some pain relief. It was also contraband, and so I smuggled cigarettes. And then I funded that by selling cigarettes, a buck for half and two bucks for a whole. I'd basically give him a cigarette, stand guard outside while he smoked it, and he'd go back and get a little bit of sleep. I'd get a little bit of sleep, so it worked for me, worked for him. Having got out of Wyatterow, I decided to focus on risk and to build a consulting practice around that. Put myself under unrealistic pressure. And one day, my wife and I were having a discussion, and she said something that I misunderstood. She had said that she wasn't really, she wasn't really relying on me to generate income for the family, because I had been ill, by which she meant 
there is no pressure on you to do this. But a part of my risk management that I had always had ever since my first diagnosis was that I wouldn't self-terminate without my wife's permission, knowing full well she would never give that permission. What I interpreted from that was my wife didn't need me anymore. She was doing fine, our kids were grown up, and I didn't need to stick around if I didn't want to. And I thought to myself, I'm not having any fun. It's okay for me to go. And within five minutes of that thought, I made an attempt on my own life. And just before it was something that was going to be permanent, a thought flashed through my mind. I wonder if she actually meant that. Because if she didn't mean that, and if I've got it wrong, she's going to be really pissed. Then I had a second thought, which was, maybe I need to check, because it wouldn't be the first time that I'd believed something that I knew to be untrue. And so I aborted my attempt on the basis that I could always take up where I left off if you know I'd actually gotten it right. And I telephoned her, and I told her what I had done, and she was mortified. And of course, I had gotten it completely wrong. She insisted I see my doctor. My doctor insisted I see the psychiatrist again. My medication was adjusted, and I stayed on it for about half a year. After screwing around with my meds for all these years, I unilaterally decided to go off all of my meds. Bipolar disorder is something that we take medication to treat, and something we take therapy to treat. But it's also something that can be exploited. It's a superpower that allows me to stay awake for weeks on end if I need to. And choosing to do that is a form of self-abuse, but it's a very attractive temptation. And in fact, recently I've had to do it when I decided to move house. It was physically too much that needed to be done and not enough time to do it in. I now know the importance of sleep, the importance of avoiding needless stress. I avoid cognitive dissonances, and where I find the cognitive dissonances, I have learned to trust what I know to be true rather than what I've been told to be true, which breaks that cycle very tidily. I'm currently driving a pilot truck for a fantastic company in Masterton that understands people with mental illness. It's the most fun I've had working pretty much ever since I've worked. I'm seeing some fantastic scenery. Just being out and amongst the fresh air is deeply therapeutic. Having a boss that you like is deeply therapeutic. I go to work each day looking forward to what it is that we're going to be doing, which in my case is driving behind a mower at about five kilometers an hour and keeping the traffic away from them. Requires 100% of my concentration, but creates 0% stress, and so I'm actually able to enjoy my work. So I come home at the end of the day feeling exhausted, but happy. Thanks for listening to Out of My Mind. If you want to subscribe to the full series or learn more about the people I've interviewed, check out stuff.co.nz slash outofmymind. If this episode has brought up any difficult thoughts or feelings for you, 
The website has helpline numbers and links to mental health resources. And if you feel like you need help right now, you can make a free call or text to 1737, where you can talk with the counsellor and get some immediate support. Out of My Mind was made for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. It was supported by a Like Minds, Like Mind grant from the Mental Health Foundation. Engineering by Alex Chalkoff at Department of Post, music by Audio Network. My editorial advisor was Eugene Bingham, and special thanks also to Tammy Allen and Katrina Ferguson. Full credits on the website, and if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review with lots of stars. It helps new listeners find us. See ya.